0: Today we're rewinding back about four years to uh, November 19th, 2014. It's three and a half years, I guess. Episode 1468, the world won't end, but your world could. As you can see, I'm, I've got another rewind up for you guys. If, if you heard my voice last week, you know it's just not good. And it's still not great, but it's getting better. But I know if I push through you know, an hour and a half today with a feedback show, it will be right back to where it was Friday by the end of the day. I'm also, guys, you know, guys, I am not the guy that, like, folds up shop when he's sick. I work through being sick all the time I have my whole life. But uh, I'm off my game, man. I, I uh, Whatever the hell this thing is, it's not It's not complete misery or anything. It's just like you, you can't get comfortable and you can't think. Um, my wife asked me to get her something the other day. Oh, a towel because she was eating a chicken wing. I walked right over, picked up a bottle of lemon ice juice, and and took her that. Just, and then looked at her like she was crazy when she didn't want it. Like, well, this is what you said you know, I asked for a towel. Yeah, you didn't. Oh, I see. So I just know that if I do a a regular show today, that I'm not going to give you guys my A game. It won't even be my B game. And I'd I'd rather give you a good rewind, you know, a, a great rewind rather than a lackluster new show. And I was thinking like for today's show, this is actually a really great one because it is a back-to-basics prepping-type show, one we've been needing to do something like this for a while, focusing on the six primary needs uh, for people that are new to prepping, food, water, shelter, energy, health, sanitation, and security. Uh, We go through the different types of economic downturns, like a recession, a depression, an economic collapse, or a currency default. Uh, We'll talk about some basic common-sense preparedness things, like food for 30 to 60 days, uh, the ability to deal with an initial power loss in 5 to 10 minutes to actually be back on, on track and taking care of your stuff. How to have power for 14 days with basic needs and comfort. The ability to deal with waste for 30 days if you have to. ability to treat basic injuries and illnesses and to keep your home uh, safe and from damages that are not catastrophic so you can still stay in your home even if there's some damage to it. Things like that today. We'll talk about helping neighbors Uh, communications and getting information, all kinds of really great stuff. Again, I'm sorry to have to give you guys another rewind so soon, uh, but there is a point in time where all of us need to realize our limitations. I hope by resting my voice for the rest of today, I'll be able to come back tomorrow. And because we skipped the uh, listener feedback show today, instead of doing a standalone show tomorrow, I'll probably do a feedback show for you guys and try to get us back kind of on track with this show. Being what's supposed to be on a Tuesday, which is a typical Just Jack show. So here we go, all the way back to boat, all the way back to November 19, 2014, uh, when the the world won't end, but your world could. And remember, while the rewind shows are commercial free, one way you can always help support us is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. I have a pretty cool item up for review today that you can find there as well at tspaz.com. This is a good one to share. Because again, it's not about the end of your world as you know it. We always talk about the end of the world as we know it. Well, I got news for you: there will be massive shifts in the world, and there always have been, and there always will be. And if the world truly ends, your problems are over. Have a beer and watch the mushroom cloud, or whatever, as you evaporate from the planet. Um, on some levels, you have to you have to always temper preparedness against. Circle of influence and circle of concern. What are you worried about, and what can you do something about? And the truth is, if a giant comet smashes it into our planet, uh, something the uh, astronomers call Thor's hammer, it probably doesn't matter what you do. So don't worry about that. It, it, well, it could happen, yeah, and you could step on a lottery ticket with gum on your shoe, pull it off and realize that it was thrown on the ground, but yet uh, it was a winning ticket and win $10 million. That could happen, too but you're not going to base your life on it, and you're not going to base your retirement on that. And if you're even basing your retirement on winning the lottery and you buy 100 tickets a week, you're probably making a mistake. You focus on the things that you actually have influence over. And so with that alone, a lot of stuff that people in the preparedness world worry about, you just kind of put it way back on the shelf, and some of it, it's on the shelf, it's still there, we'll get to it, but we have other priorities first. And... The reality is the world as we know it is probably not going to end in any of the doomsday scenarios that the extreme versions of the preparedness community, survivalist community talk about. The United Nations is not going to send a bunch of blue-helmeted guys to take over the United States and put you in a FEMA camp. It, it's not going to happen. Um, and if it does, it'll be time for to have a, a very large live fire exercise, as we used to say when I was in the Army. Okay, So... That goes on the shelf. And if we have an economic collapse in this country, it'll look a lot like the one we're currently involved in that erodes the wealth of Americans and pushes us further into debt servitude and destroys the lives of millions of Americans, yet the machine still kind of works. Okay, If it gets really bad, it might look like Argentina or collapses we've seen in the Soviet Union or Mongolia, but it still goes. And when you tell people that, and I, you know, this was precipitated by comments and questions and emails. that all came in from a show on Monday where somebody asked me about, you know, what about the time frame to the end? And I'm like, that's not, you can't think that way because the economy is not going to end. As long as there's people here and value here, there'll be an economy here. Uh, On that note, let's talk before I get into the deep meat today about the concept of economic collapse and why it won't happen the way people think it would, and how even if the people that worship the gold medal, or the yellow medal, gold as I call it, that's the gold religion, even if they're right, we're in great shape. The United States has more gold than any other nation in the world. The next closest nation to us in gold reserves is Germany, and we have about 2.4 times the gold Germany does no one else is even remotely close to us in gold reserves and the central bank, the federal reserve and the major banks within the central banking institution have massive gold reserves too and they've been hoarding it for a long time that's why they hate silver bugs because they they put their faith in the yellow metal and, and the commoner puts his faith in the white metal and in the end there's plenty of gold to run an economy on in this country and that's not where the value of our money comes from anyway And our money doesn't come from the government or the value of it. It doesn't come from any kind of a magical power that the Federal Reserve has. The real source of value of currency within an economy is the value of things in the economy. And and the United States is one of the wealthiest nations in the world in things, resources, timber, farmland, arable land, ranching ability. All the things that we can do in this country. All the ways that we can provide needs and services and goods and food and all of those things are what actually derive the value into the currency. So we're not going to collapse the way that, you know, you see on TV where all of a sudden one day all the money's worthless. People throw it in the fireplace and set it on fire to warm themselves because it's worth more that way or what have you. It's just not how modern economies function. And even economies that have completely fallen on their ass and collapsed immediately begin to reconstitute and rebuild so you you say that, and then you get people to go, "Why am I even doing this then? Why am I even prepping like Does this even make sense should i Should I just make sure I have a basic bag in case there 's a storm, uh, some flashlights and batteries, a little bit of extra water around and and go on live my life the way that most Americans do, and the answer is probably not. And you weren't too far off until you said live my life the way most Americans do, enslaved by debt, enslaved by their very employment, and limited in every single way as to what's going to happen to them if any, you know, if anything goes wrong. Note, I, I I called the show today. The world won't end, but your world could. When when you try to explain some of these things. People always seem to feel it means, well, it isn't so bad, uh, so do we even need to prep beyond basic readiness? That, that's, that's how people feel. Like If you say, well, the economy is not going to completely drop out of the bottom of the bucket, people say, well, then I'm not worried. Well, maybe you should be. Uh, I've been doing this show for so long, sometimes I forget many of our core concepts of modern survivalism might be foreign to people that have been listening even for two years or more especially if they listen selectively, like they choose, pick and choose which ones to listen to. They may have never heard things like probability factor and impact scale and inverse relationships and, and all of these things and know how we actually form the groundwork for our prepping because they might have missed the groundwork I laid in the formative years of the podcast. So today I'm going to combine a bit of fundamental modern survival thinking with current modern threats and considerations. I'll try to explain the balances between the doomsday prepper nonsense and the concept of, well, all I need is a flashlight and some candle thinking. Um, humans, by and large, have become binary creatures with an internal binary code of ones and zeros, just like computers. That's why the political dichotomy is so damn effective. We literally think in two dimensions. Safety and danger, Democrat-Republican, Pepsi and Coke, Rich or poor, sick or healthy, alive or dead, et cetera, and agnosium, goes on and on. The absolutes are indeed black and white in the world. But life, the part we actually live, is a million shades of gray. Today, my goal is to bring you out into the spectrum and let you see some of those shades. So let's start out with the basic core. What is the core principles of modern survivalism as I have put it out? And for those that are new to the show or newer to the show, I coined the phrase modern survivalism. I don't claim any trademarks or rights to it, but I do know that when I went on the air in 2008 and did my Google Foo and put in, quote, modern survival, end quote, there was like one result on all of the Internet that came up, and it was like a sentence that ended in modern, and then the next sentence started. So it wasn't even a phrase. And modern survivalism turned up nothing. And modern survivalist turned up nothing. Now, there's a lot of people, including some good friends, using the terminology now. And I don't begrudge them. But what I'm trying to get across to you is the whole thing started here at TSP with that level of let's take... That wish we have, which is great, and combine it with old world, old school preparedness thinking, just like our grandparents did. Let's get back to the world that understood the value in the parable of the ant and the grasshopper and told it to children so that they would understand basic preparedness. And it all began with the concept of disaster probability, the disaster impact scale, and the inverse relationship of impact and probability. Here's how that works. When you look at preparedness as an industry and the things that drive people into the preparedness mindset, it is the least likely, largest impact events that hit the fear center somewhere in the human being and make them go, oh, crap, feel exposed, and then they go about trying to make that fear, uh, that concern, go away. And it's a very human thing to do. It's a very binary thing to do. Everything's not super oh, hell, I need to do something about it so that I can feel safe again. So you've been walking around with the zero switch on for danger in your life. All of a sudden, the one switch goes on, and I want to make it go back to a zero. Okay, That's the mental state people are in. And it is always the earth-ending coronal mass ejection of the sun that shuts down the entire electrical grid. And you know what? It's a billion-to-one shot. And it still probably doesn't shut everything down for good. Okay? It's the, well, there's going to be an economic collapse, all the retirement money's going to be gone, no more Social Security, and the dollar's going to be worthless. Yeah, well, it's probably not going to work out that way. And the person runs headlong into preparedness with whatever fear is their fear. You know, one of the accurate things about doomsday preppers when they say, "What are you prepping for?" and the the the, uh, the lackey of the episode says, "I'm preparing for a financial collapse." I, I know for a fact from talking to people that have been on the show. There are some people on that show that they were told, "Okay, we already did that, so you're preparing for this." But in general, the 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 extremist prepper is preparing in their head for an event or two. It's like it's going to be this or that. One of them is going to get us, and it's that mindset. That, that blows up the whole methodology that I put together to make this common sense. And it works like this: the probability factor is how likely is this disaster to occur at least once during your life to you? Got it? How? And, and here's this like totally hard to accept fact for human beings with our one zero mentality. The one that affects the least number of people is most likely to affect you. Okay? Don't believe me. Fine. Losing a job is a disaster, especially when you are the primary breadwinner in a family or the only breadwinner in a family, and you are living a life like most Americans where if you don't get paid by the end of this month anyway, maybe not next week, but if you're going a month without being paid, you've got a problem. That's a disaster. How many people lose jobs in their lives? And most do. And for some people, it's a minor speed bump. And for some people, it's a major catastrophic disaster that literally ends their world as they know it, and they never recover. And it's the truth. And generally speaking, the further you are along in life, the more vested you are in your current lifestyle, the more damaging the loss becomes, the longer you've been around, the more damaging the loss becomes. Twenty-three year old kid comes to me and go, "They lost my job." I go, "You'll we'll get another job. Your job couldn't have been that great anyway." You know, and, and, and honestly, no one's really going to give a shit that you lost a job. You can go find another job. We we'll get another job. When you're forty-five, you've been doing the same work for twenty years, and you lose your job. Do you know what the employer's thinking when you come try to get a job from them? Well, what they get ready for. What's wrong with you? Even if it's, always oh, a it downsizing? Yeah, but is the company still in business? Yeah, okay, well then, out of all the people they could have got rid of, and all the people they could have kept, they chose to get rid of you. I don't care if it's fair or not, that's the mentality. And it's, it's probably the case of the person that's 45, been doing the job for 20 years, very good at it, become very proficient at it, highly specialized within it, very good income. Very large lifestyle being supported off it. Lots of debts, good and bad, right? Lots of probabilities of things like kids getting ready or already in college. Kids that are living on their own and maybe being stipended with a little bit of money, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that could have gone on, and you're wondering, like, now how do I provide for all that? And you're going out, and if you're 25 and lose a job, And you have to take a job that pays 10% less, not that big a deal. If you're 45 and lose a job and have to take a job that pays 10% less, you literally have to start downsizing your life. This is a high probability of disaster. Okay. How about this? A person in your family that you love, depend on, care for, diagnosed with cancer. Given one in three Americans are expected to have a cancer diagnosis in their life, it's pretty high. Now, I, I believe there are things you can do with lifestyle choices that lessen the probability, but if it was 1 in 10, which is more than that, and I don't know how to get you below that number, even with some of the best nutrition and and, and lifestyle choices out there, it, it's still very probable that it's going to be you or your spouse that has to face this. It is end of the world, and sometimes it's, it's, it's a definitive end of the world for one of those people. But it could be the end of the world as they know it for the other person. These are high probability. Uh, a, a house fire. Uh, somebody being in a severe accident and either dying or being you know, damaged physically for the rest of their life. A localized storm that destroys part or all of your home. If you stick in these small total body count numbers for the individual occurrence, the probability is very high. When we start to move out... We say um, an epidemic of a disease that spreads around the world and infects 100 million, 200 million, 300 million people worldwide, kills thousands and thousands of people, uh, the the odds that you're going to be affected by that are pretty low. And it's probably one of the more likely big disasters that we could face. We could have a... (laughs) We could have a disease that infects a billion people or two billion people and kills hundreds of millions. It could have. It ain't going to be a Ebola, by the way, because it doesn't work that way, but the fact that some sort of clave of the flu could mutate this way or some other disease we're not even aware of yet or some stupid-ass person in a lab somewhere might actually alter something some way and really screw it up. These are things that could happen, but the odds that they're going to happen to you the odds that they're going to affect you are pretty low. Okay? There's what I call an inverse relationship. And In all the big disasters, the odds that you're going to experience them are very low. Global thermal nuclear war. Right? It's not that it can't happen, there's enough shit still out there to blow the whole world up, but if it does, it should go into your circle of you know concern, not influence. You're not going to hold the Minuteman missile back, and if you know the mushroom clouds rise, you're probably dead anyway. Drink a beer under a tree and enjoy the fact that you got to see the end of the world. I don't know. We, we And if like, that's a fatalistic attitude. Well, at some levels, you have to have a fatalistic attitude. See, you're born with a terminal illness called life. The most dangerous thing you can ever do if you don't want to die is be born. Once you're born, there's like 100% guaranteed open-ended check out there somewhere that says one day it's going to be cashed and you're going to be dead. So on some levels, just to be healthy and happy and energetic and positive, you have to accept the fact that you are a mortal being and you're going to die and you can be damaged and you can be injured and you just have to get over it. I mean, if you have any confusion about this right now, take your right finger like you're going to point at somebody, your index finger, look at your left forearm and and touch yourself. Poke your arm. You see that? That's flesh, blood, and bone. If instead of poking yourself, you took a hatchet, and chopped into it, you cut your arm off, you probably bleed to death and you die. If you get hit by a gravel truck tomorrow, you're probably dead. Unless you're driving another gravel truck, and you still might be dead. This is the reality of the human species. And if you sit around stressed out about dying or getting hurt or losing something all the time, you'll never have anything. And your health will be shit. And your life will be shit. That's not the way to live. So you accept this inverse relationship, and we begin... First, to prepare for those things that are most likely to happen to us. Not like most likely to happen at all, but most likely to happen in a way that will affect us dramatically and impact our lives heavily. And the reason people just put those aside is they say, well, I know people that have had job losses and uh, career-ending job losses and had to figure out something else to do. They're still alive. They're still okay. I know people that have had a spouse get cancer and recover, and it messed up everything, but they're still okay. Or they've lost their spouse, or they lost their child, or they lost their parent, or whatever it is, but they still went on. So... The very fact that the person continues to exist means they survive, so it's not really survivalism. Well, if you think about it that way, I guess it isn't. But to me, survival is not just continuing to exist. It's continuing to exist in a way that's pleasing to me, that that has an upside, right? That has the potential to become something better tomorrow than it is today. And as you get older, you start to realize that There's less tomorrows than there are yesterdays for your personal life. It's part of that mortal shell that you have. You start realizing it makes a lot of sense to do the most you can with what you have today. Because it's it's literally this way. If you could know the date of your death, then you could put a giant container in your home somewhere. And you could fill it with marbles. And each of those marbles would represent a day of your life. And it doesn't matter whether you can live to be a hundred, seventy, sixty, doesn't matter. Once that was done and that was known, every day you go take a marble out, throw it away. I'd hope you'd do something good with it before you threw it away. That's why we plan. That's why we prepare. And that's why we don't say, oh, Oh, since economic collapse doesn't mean the end of everything and Armageddon in the streets and road warrior, people shooting at each other and burning each other's houses down all over the place at the same time, then we don't need to worry about it. Go, yeah, you do, because you could be, if we have an economic collapse that results in 20% of Americans losing their job, you could be one of the 20%. And when the cost of everything goes up, even if you don't, your money's not going to go as far. This is, this is reality. So let's talk about six primary needs. Six primary needs that I talk about all the time. And let's look at them a little bit differently today. The the, the the six primary needs that we all have to survive. And this comes straight from wilderness survival mentality. And I've done one tricky thing. I've changed fire into energy since we're not in the woods. And I've added health and sanitation, which is inherently understood by the wilderness survival mindset that we don't, Eat things that will kill us or poison us or things like that. And when we're living in a more civilized world, you know, a home, a structure, a neighborhood, a community, a village, what have you, we have to think about that at a higher level. Because in the woods, if you have to poop, you can. You, there's a right way and a wrong way. But in the end, if you go over behind a tree and poop, it's not a big deal. If you live in a place like your house and you keep doing that for very long, your neighbors are doing it, ends up with cholera, dysentery, etc. Right? So there's a little, a little different way to look at things there. But I put them in this order, and they're committed in my mind this way. Food, water, shelter, energy, health, and sanitation, security. And you can stop me on the street and go, Jack, what are the six primary survival needs? And I'm going to go, food, water, shelter, energy, health, sanitation, security. All right? and, and it's just because I've memorized them that way, and I've presented them that way so many times. But that's really not the right order. If you really want to understand the risks in your life, it's not the right order. And the one that's the most critical, you say, "Oh, Jack, you should put water first, because we can go like three days without water and three weeks without food." So the water's more important. In some ways, yeah, but um, in some ways, shelter's more important because, well, if you are unsheltered in the wrong environment, you could be dead long faster than you would be from the lack of water or food. Extreme cold, extreme heat can kill you very quickly without shelter. Especially high winds and things like that during extreme cold. Uh, finding some level of shelter in the wilderness is very, very important in a cold climate, especially, In a hot climate as well. Shade saves lives, so you, you might say, "Well, shelter." So, shelter, food, water, or shelter, water, food. That now we've got it. Energy, yeah, you know, and health, sanitation, uh, and security. You know, like you can yeah. no, see, you got it all wrong. The the most critical thing that you can do without for the least amount of time ever when you need it is security security is the number one priority in a survival situation and every day of your life is a survival situation okay you just don't know it and it's probably good that you don't sit around every minute of the day with your situational awareness is so high that it's it's on your radar that you're in a constant survival situation, but you are. You get a car, every other vehicle around you is capable of taking your life. Every time you go to a store, there's a probability, a possibility anyway, that someone in that store would want to rob it and be willing to kill somebody, and that somebody could be you. Every time you walk down the street, there's a possibility that somebody just wants to kill somebody that day, and they see you and you're dead before you know you're in danger. Every day of your life is a survival situation. And the thing that you can do without for the least amount of time is security. And if you doubt me, I want you to think about this sound. That's the sound of a large shovel impacting the back of your skull because there's one of my security forces right there responding to that sound, Charlie. But that is the sound of a shovel or a baseball bat or a rock striking you in the back of your skull Because somebody that was on a street corner that you walked past that you didn't think was dangerous decided they wanted you dead. And the total amount of time necessary for you to be without security for that to happen is that fast. You're dead or seriously injured and laying there helpless. And if they want you dead, you're going to be dead. Now, there is no period of time where being without water for that fast, which is a fraction of a second, is going to kill you. There's no period of time where being without health and sanitation for that period of time is going to kill you. Shelter, you can be without shelter for a fraction of a second. So the number one issue in your life, really, to survive is security. And that comes with a lot of other components that actually make it happen. And in the end, you should have to have this fatalistic attitude. You know the old knife versus gun debate? Like who can kill you quicker, a guy with a knife or a gun? Yeah? You know what the answer is? takes the same amount of time. It's this. You're dead. Why? Because you don't think that every single person that walks by you on the street is going to whip out a karambit and slit your carotid artery or pull out a gun and shoot you in the back of the head. But if they choose to do it, and you're not aware that it's about to occur, you're dead. That's the reality of violence. Fortunately, we are a relatively civilized being compared to a lot of other beings out there that we know of on this planet anyway. And we don't generally behave that way for a variety of reasons. Fear of incarceration, fear of retaliation, a basic innate moral structure that is in most people, etc. Okay? So that in of itself keeps people from needing security. And the more we have of an apparatus provided by others, the more the illusion of the lack of need for it occurs. So security is paramount. Okay? The next one that gets put at the bottom of the list, and it's my own list and I put it down there, so it's my fault, is health and sanitation. I almost have it backwards if we change a few of the other ones around. Why? Okay. How long does it take you to become infected with some illness that's deadly? If you're exposed to it. Not much longer than being hit in the head with a shovel. Okay. Because our streets are generally clean, because our waste goes down a hole and disappears, and we don't even think about what happens to it, right? Because we have fairly clean water to drink, because everything is pretty much sanitary, health is high in our country and in most of the developed world. But you can be exposed to something or infected with something you don't even know about for years. There's parasites, that get in human bodies that, you know, when you finally find them, it's some type of a fungus growing in your lungs, and they can't even remove it, and it could kill you. Like a non-cancerous, living, growing tumor that can't be removed. There's a fungus that does that. But the exposure time necessary, during a weakened immune state especially, is a couple seconds. And when you start to think about it that way, you start to really realize that at some levels, those two things need to be paramount in your planning. The ability to stay healthy, the ability to maintain sanitary conditions, the ability to treat ailments so they don't become more severe. Because here's another thing, you cut yourself, right? How long does it take to get infected? It takes the exact amount of time it takes for the infectious component to get in there and start to work. You might not see it for a couple days, It turns to a gangrenous wound, threatens your life with septic nature, right? But the the, the occurrence, these are the two things that get put at the bottom that really need to be at least the forefront of our planning. And I would say from there, shelter is the next most important thing. And if I was teaching you wilderness survival, it's exactly what I would teach you. Assuming you're not already dehydrated, we could find water tomorrow. Tonight I you need to keep you warm or today I need to keep you cool so you don't die of heat exhaustion or, or, or cold weather casualty. Now, why do we not think that way in our planning? Because we all have a house or an apartment or someplace we live, our parents' basement. One way or another, we take shelter for granted. Those three things need to be at the forefront of our planning. From there, we move into water, food, and energy. Water, except in some places you know where it really is arid, etc., is something you can pretty much always come up with if you have a way to purify it, uh, filter it, etc. So we take it for granted. But the number one killer in the world is a health and sanitation issue during disasters. Number one killer in the world during disasters, so I'm clear, and disaster aftermath, really, is diarrhea from dysentery, cholera, and other things. And it comes from drinking contaminated water. So the water and the health and sanitation are immensely linked to each other. And I'll tell you why. You take a person that's on the verge of dying from dehydration, and you give them two choices, die of dehydration, drink contaminated water. They will drink the contaminated water every time. So then we go to water, then we go to food, then we go to energy. With the right shelter, okay, the right shelter, I can keep you warm or cool enough to stay alive a lot longer than you need energy for. But where does everybody start? Food and energy. Food energy is where everybody starts with preparedness. Buckets and buckets of food, of food they don't even want to eat, and solar panels. <laughs> right? Now, I'm not saying that any of them aren't important. I'm saying from a, a mental acuity standpoint, to a mental planning state, that we have everything backwards. And why? Because we're thinking about the long-term, earth-ending disaster, right? So we're thinking, man, we need to make sure we have food to last for 100 years, You don't even live a hundred years. Don't worry about a hundred years worth of food. Okay? So, again, I'm going to go through back through the concept of these six things today and the things that I consider basic common sense preparedness. So I'm not saying any one of them's not, I'm not saying food's not important. I'm not saying you know, energy's not important. I think they're very important. They're survival needs. Right? They're not survival nice to haves. They are needs. That means we have to have them, and eventually a lack of them can cause a serious harm, illness, or death. I'm just saying the two that can kill you that fast, health and sanitation and security. And they're the ones you have an illusion of not being that important because they're provided by others. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter if the disaster that you're in lasts for one day or... Ten years. The amount of time necessary for you to be killed, injured, deformed, etc. by either one of those is seconds. The aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, there were people that didn't get any emergency response for a week or two. The cesspool that was around them in the right conditions could have infected them with things that would have killed them. We didn't have a lot of that happen, but it's possible. Haitian earthquake, the earthquake was a couple minutes long. The number one thing that caused death, again, was dysentery and cholera. due to di- and, and diarrhea caused dehydration from the consumption of contaminated water. Well, it takes one gulp of that water to infect your system. And that happens in a fraction of a second just a different way to think about things. But before we get into the basic preparedness that I think everybody should have in their lives, what I call being a responsible adult, I want to actually talk about what caused this whole show to be done, this this, this understanding that economic collapse isn't what you think it is. Let's actually talk about the four types of economic uh, catastrophes that there are for people in the world. There's recession, depression, total collapse, and currency default. And sometimes you get more than one at the same time. So, so what is the difference between recession, which is something we went through very recently, the Great Recession, so we can feel like we're just as strong and powerful as the World War II generation that rose out of the Great Depression. It makes us feel good to be told we're, it's bullshit. All right? let's, let's, What is the difference? There is kind of a standard number that says, okay, we know we're officially in a recession. And that is when the economic output, the gross domestic product, falls for two or more consecutive quarters. So, quarter one, drop. Quarter two, drop. We're in a recession. And recessions are highly psychological, too, and people, how people behave in the economy. So, you know, you're in a recession because you can see that people have lost their jobs. You know, the number is going to come out and say that, that we're in a depression or, or what ha- a recession or what have you. But the day that they go on the, the news and say, it's official. We have entered a recession. Ah! Everybody freaks out and retracts spending and freaks out about everything. And companies start laying people off. And there's this whole psychological chain of events that actually make the recession worse. Now, does that mean I think everybody should be out buying all their stuff with MasterCard and Visa? No. The you know anything about my work, I think you should get rid of those cards. And the only justification I, I can come up with for them is that you need them sometimes to rent a car. And that didn't used to be the case. And for years, people said they needed one to rent a car. And I rented my cars with debit cards and refused to get a credit card. And in the last couple of years, it's gotten to be where it, it's it's stupid hard in many locations to even rent a car. So we broke down and got a freaking credit card. All right. So I'm not saying to keep spending money on MasterCard Visa, but most people do. So it doesn't matter how the spending gets cut. It matters that the spending gets cut. And when you're in a an economy driven by spending and consumption, which is what our current economy and all of the uh, modern economies are, then when you have a recession and people fear it and curtail the the, the spending, you get further contraction and a deepening recession. When does recession become depression? There's no answer to that, really. There's no technical number that's there like in a textbook that says, "A a depression is defined as... But a depression is when the recession remains, it continues to deepen and get worse, and it starts to to, to actually erode the nation itself or the economy itself. There's an old economic joke that says that when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession, and when you lose yours, it's a depression. And it really is just a depression is a serious recession, a much more serious. Because recessions come in little bitty ones, really nasty ones and awful depressions that you just can't seem to get out from underneath. There's no green shoots coming out of the economy. Everything's getting worse. Everything's getting worse. What is an economic collapse? That's where you have a serious enough depression, either acute onset or long term, that the nation's economy begins to grind to a halt. And you get to a point where basic things that you would expect simply don't happen anymore. Cities begin to have to lay off entire uh, uh, departments that took care of the things that you expected to be taken care of. And you know what happens? You lose security. And a lot of times you start to lose sanitation as well. And, and, and you have this degrading effect. A currency default is when the nation has made an agreement in relation to the currency and alters it. And we've had several of those in the last 100 years. When we went off the, the full reserve gold standard in the 30s, it was a currency default. And we immediately created a second default by floating the floating the value of gold up after we took the ability for people to own gold away from them. In other words, we said to all the people, we're going to give you money for your gold. We're not going to seize it, right? The gold confiscation. It wasn't a gold confiscation. The The... The government said, hey, we were in a deep financial crisis, we'll buy your gold. And most people didn't, no one went out with a gun and took gold away from me. People walked up to the, to, and took the cash for the gold. Changed it all in. And the, you know, the, the government did this in many different ways to get this done. And you could have some gold, right? There was some provision for that. But you couldn't go out and buy bars of gold. You couldn't bank in gold, what, what have you anymore. And that was a default. Well, the second default was immediately the price of gold was pegged to the dollar. So then the government unpegged it and let gold float to about 35 U.S. dollars, which was what it was really worth, not the 20 that they just gave the people. That was a second default. Then in the 1960s, when they demonetized silver and pulled silver out of the economy, that was another currency default. We defaulted on our backing of our coinage, which in the 60s was still significant People bought a lot of shit for $0.75 cents in 1964, and we we defaulted on that. And at least if you had a piggy bank full of silver coins, then you had that value. And anybody that wanted to could cull money out of the economy and put it away as silver. Well, we defaulted on that, and we started doing everything in zinc and nickel and, and uh, copper. So that was another default. Then, when Nixon closed the gold window in the 1970s, that was a fourth default on our currency. Because up until then, even though we didn't let the public own and trade in gold, we had said to any nation out there, if you bring us dollars, we will give you an equivalent amount in gold. We still have this gold reserve that we're willing to exchange for our dollars, and then we can always get more gold and put it back in reserve. And, and then we had basically Charles de Gaulle of France declare economic war on the United States and say we will teach them, and just constantly was shaking us down for more and more gold in return for our money by repatri- repatriating our dollars back to us, because the dollar really was the global standard at the time. So we closed. That was another default. So none of those created true depressions. None of those created a collapse. One was part of the stagflation of the '70s. Um, the '60s were actually pretty good, in spite of the the coinage default. The '30s, it was already in a depression, and it didn't really help, but it didn't really cause it. So, and and I would tell you this: when we went from a true free market. ...gold-based banking system to a a, a controverted, controlled Federal Reserve System in 1913... ...that was yet another default on the currency. It was a partial default. Uh, In fact, I would say that the Coinage Act of the 60s was a partial default. The 1913 formation of the Federal Reserve was a partial default. The shenanigans of the 30s was a full default on the currency. We completely broke our deal... And in the 1970s, the closing of the gold window was a complete default of the currency. We just defaulted to something else. See, default doesn't mean complete failure. It means you failed to meet your obligation. You failed to meet your agreement. We defaulted back to a different position. So all of those play out different ways. And just when I tell you that you know we're not going to have the economic collapse that, that, that Nat Geo Doomsday Preppers talks about, doesn't mean you won't have an economic collapse. It doesn't mean it can't totally destroy your wealth and your retirement and your plans for your future if you're not prepared to deal with it. Just because it doesn't destroy everybody doesn't mean it won't get you. Does that make sense? And that's why we need to be prepared. So preparedness has multi-layers of how it protects us as well. One of the big things a truly prepared person has as an advantage is if it's an economic crisis, if it's a a natural disaster crisis, if it's a personal crisis. The preparedness allows the person to just step back, assess, and, and go forward with logical planning, with a methodical approach to getting themselves out of the mess that they're into. Sometimes it's a lightning fast thing, sometimes it's slow, but it's always methodical. Methodical doesn't mean slow, it means by method. So, in martial arts we have a saying, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. If we train slow, we become smooth. If we become smooth, we respond quickly. Our mind doesn't actually know the difference between slow and fast. It responds to the situation based on memory and training and 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 muscle memory and technique. So I can train very slowly in an art like Tai Chi, a soft style. But if that soft style actually moves me into a way that if I'm attacked, there's a way to respond to it. If I need to move faster within my limits as a being, I'll move faster. And I'll do the technique right because I've trained for so long, slowly, become smooth, that my body's capable of speed. So how that plays out here, I lose a job, I have a method to follow because of that job loss and I know what to do. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to relax. I'm going to assess my situation. I'm going to reach out to my network. I have reserves that I can live on until then. I have food that I, and reserves that I can feed my family with while we figure out what to do. There's, you know, there's no reactionary, fear reactionary thing. I go into my method. I'm trained in how to deal with somebody doing something like drawing a gun and sticking it in my face. I happen to be somewhere where that occurs. First thing is get out of the plane of hazard. Move. The gun comes up, turns sideways, we move. The second step is to begin a disarmament procedure based on what you're dealing with. If the situation warrants that, it depends. Where are you? What's the response? What's the probability of success? There's a method to all of this. It's based on training. But both responses are methodical, and they both happen because they're prepared in advance for them to occur. One, we must make the decision in a split second. The other, we can take some time with. But the method comes from the preparedness. Now, no one in that I know of in the preparedness survivalist world explains things that way. And I believe it's because no one understands it. I believe that the majority of people in this industry are in it because it's cool, it's hot, and it makes money. Right? I gotta sell something, I might as well sell this. People buy it. And if another industry popped up that they felt stronger about that way, they would go into it. I think not everybody, but I think that's the majority of people. Uh, and then the majority of people that are attracted to the whole concept are attracted from fear, and I want to stand in a position of power. Right? I don't mean me personally, I want you to stand in a position of power. I want you to only buy the things that you need, and I want you to do things more from your planning and your concepts and your procedures, and your protocols, and, and then to make the good decisions about what goes in reserves from that. And this is where all my basic common sense preparedness recommendations come from. The first one is, and, and they really are not in order of prob- uh, priority. These are all the things you should do, all the things you should get done. One is food for 30 to 60 days without complete boredom. So, like, you know, not just I can survive for 30 to 60 days on what I have, but you know, I can eat pretty close to at least the way that I, I normally eat. And one of the reasons that that goes to the top of the list, even though food, I can go out with a, without for a lot longer than I can go without security when I need it, is because food is something we are out acquiring at least weekly for most people. We have gardens. We grow in our backyard. There's this constant opportunity to put a little bit away, to put a little bit away, just like money. We, most of us are constantly making some sort of an income. We're doing some sort of a spending. In all of that activity, there's a, there's a you know the ability to just take a little piece, put it over here. Take a little piece, put it over there. Take a little piece, put it over here. So food, it's easy to do that with. It is something we need, and it's one of the things that allows us to have the methodical response to the longer-duration disasters, If we know we can put food on the table for the next two months and dad loses his job, it's one less thing to worry about. It's easy to do. It's actually cheap to do if we're not trying to do it all with MREs and uh, buckets and shit like that. If we're just doing copy canning, we're paying attention. We keep a food journal. We find all of the things that get consumed in our home, that people like to eat in our home, that have a stable shelf life, and we buck up on those. We do some protein stuff, either with drying or canning or smoking or whatever, and we build up on that. We make those good foods part of our normal diet, and we're storing what we eat and eating what we store, All of a sudden, that gets really easy to do, and if you just plan to do it, a year into it, it's happened. So it's very easy. That's why it's one of the first things I talk about. The next thing is the ability to deal with an initial power loss in 5 to 10 minutes. If you're in your home, everything goes off, and it's pitch dark, and it's going to start getting cold, okay, or it's going to start getting really hot. Whatever it is you need to do to at least be able to find your way around and start implementing your longer term plan, you should be able to get that done in five to ten minutes. And for some people, it's automatic. You have a backup automatic generator, turns everything back on. You may not, if it's going to be a bad long term outage, want to let that thing just keep running. Right? You may want to start rationing, but that just, okay, the house kind of fixes it for you. For a lot of us, it's, well, okay, I've got some emergency lighting in place, that comes on. We've got our, our blackout, not our bug out, our blackout kit here. This has all our flashlights, extra batteries, and things like this. We have our battery bank. This is where we keep our extension cords. These are all the things we need to gather together to begin to deal with the fact that the power is going to be out for a while. That, you should be in a position where you can get that done in 10 minutes. Right? It doesn't mean it's all implemented. It's just you can get to it all. Everybody's got a flashlight. Everybody can see what they're doing. No one's going to break their neck and fall down the stairs. Right? And, and we know what to do next. Then I also think we should have the ability to provide our own energy needs, our own power needs. So this is for cooking, heating, cooling, doing our work, whatever it is, for 14 days, and that's basic needs and basic comfort. That doesn't mean being to have the big screen TV blowing and going while the hot water heater's running, while the electric stove's running, and while the air conditioner's blowing. Right? That's a pretty big bill. All right? And if you can do it, God bless you. Go for it. I'm saying that you should be able to live in your home for 14 days with the main breaker thrown on the power box and be relatively comfortable. That doesn't mean you're, you're at perfect room temperature or whatever, but your food doesn't all go bad. You can get by. Right? And there's ways to do that with generators, battery backup systems, inverters for your vehicles. We've talked about all those, but that's, instead of thinking about all the stuff to do it, think about the time. Because the reality is, depending on where you live, it's very, very different. If you live in Vermont, and you have a few cords of wood sitting outside the wood stove, yay, yeah, you're 90% there. You're 90% there because your biggest need is heat in the winter. In the summer, your air conditioner is open the window and maybe a battery bank and a fan. Okay? If you live in Texas, you can be completely miserable without the ability to at least cool one area of the home. Your food's gonna start going bad a lot faster, etc so what it takes to get to that number varies based on your needs your requirements your location your budget but that duration is a very solid duration why in most instances of severe power outage in 14 days power's back right i'm not talking about the little stuff that people go through all the time they're out power for a day or two i'm talking about severe stuff like what we went through in arkansas the year before we came back lodgepole pine trees So big you couldn't get your arms around them. So weighed down with ice, growing in granite soils, with flat root systems, the tree didn't break. The whole tree fell over. Not one of them. Hundreds of them. Across roads, across power lines. Seven days, no electricity. We rocked right through it. There were places, 14. Some places were up to 20 days. See, I think when you're getting to that length of time, though, in most of your disasters... If your fuel supply, et cetera, runs out, by that point, at least you can get out to places, but you can be iced in. And for, uh, you know, even if the pl- there's places open on far away, you can't safely get to them. Okay? So there, there's that to consider. And that all is variable. When I was in the middle of a mountain in Arkansas, it's different than being, you know, at the edge of a city in a semi rural area in North Texas. It's just different. Um, the next, ability to deal with your own waste for 30 days if you have to. If you couldn't flush your toilet for 30 days, how disgusting would your place be? There's ways to do this. I'm not going into the ways, but I think that we need to be able to not have sewage and to not have garbage men for 30 days. And you got to think about two sides of that, yourself and your neighbor. Can you see most rural, not rural, most suburban neighborhoods 30 days without trash service? Just that. And what if everybody's putting their poop in their trash? How, I mean, how long does it really take for you to end up in a situation where disease becomes rampant? And it's not that long. We live under this assumption that, oh, well, everything went to hell in Haiti because it's Haiti. People get sick and die there all the time. Well, it's true. But if you break down The sanitation system here, you're just as susceptible to disease and illness as a Haitian is. You have the same blood. You have the same biochemistry. The same organisms that kill them kill you too. So we have to think about how we deal with our waste for 30 days. We have to have the ability to treat basic injuries and illnesses. Anything that's not immediately life-threatening, you should have the ability to deal with on some level, at least to be able to... Soothe symptoms until such time as greater, higher-level medical care can be can be sought. Now, there's a difference between emergency medicine, okay? What I call uh, intermittent emergency medicine and collapse medicine. Emergency is uh, I, I I I'm driving down the road. I see a car wreck. I get out. I pull a guy out of the car. I look at his leg. It's gushing blood. It's coming out of his femoral artery. I can reach in and grab his artery. I can get to it and I squeeze it shut, I hold it, all right? As a civilian first responder, that's about a high high level as I'm capable of with something so horrible. And I'm holding that, hoping, like, God, this guy doesn't die until the paramedics come, right? And when the paramedics get there, they do what they can to stop that bleed at a higher level, and their goal is to keep him alive long enough to get them to the hospital to get another higher level of medical uh, treatment And the first responders there are trying to keep them long enough alive to get their top crack surgeon guy that can maybe repair this and get plasma and shit into them and keep them alive. Everybody's trying to go to the highest level capable of saving the person's life. To me, that's emergency medicine, right? And it it can be that severe and life-threatening to somewhat minor but could be severe. You cut yourself. You're bleeding pretty bad, but you're probably not going to bleed to death. But a pressure bandage stops that bleeding long enough for us to get you to the ER. And it's not a panic-stricken, call the ambulance, it's, it's put you in the car and drive you to the ER. Right? These are all types of emergency response. Person collapses, their heart stops, they're not breathing. Somebody go get help while I do CPR. These are emergency things. And we should have the planning and knowledge for those. But from a preparedness standpoint, that's more of a skill and knowledge set. From a, a, a supplies and long term thinking standpoint, this is, we can't leave. You've cut yourself. What's the best I can do for your injury? Alright? It's not collapse medicine, because sooner or later we can get you to the ER. Okay? Hey, it, it, I'm not going to be forever the highest level of medical response that you can expect. Right? So this is like this intermittent uh, medical requirements, medical needs. And this can be things like it's just inconvenient to go, right? Um, I've cut myself. We could go to the ER, probably could use a stitch or two, but doesn't really need it. If we dress it right uh, and and treat it right, it'll be all right. If everything was sunny, happy, go lucky, we would go to the ER and get a few stitches in that, have a doctor look at it. But since the roads are completely iced up, we're more likely to die on the road than you are to actually get sepsis or something in that cut right and anything like that we should be able to take care of person sick normally you'd go to the doctor and get a prescription medication or whatever but it's not safe it's not possible what for whatever reason we should be able to at least treat the symptoms at home there's an epidemic or pandemic going on it's a very serious illness all the people with that illness are going to the hospital you have a really nasty case of the flu but it ain't going to kill you You might as well stay home. Don't go to the doctor. Don't go to the hospital. You're more likely to get sick from whatever that other thing is. In all these situations, we should be able to take care of basic injuries and illnesses. The ability to keep your home sound in any damage that isn't catastrophic. You should have tarps and nails and things like that if there's a hole in your roof. Uh, that once it's like not critically dangerous you're not up there with lightning's going around I can at least patch a hole in the roof and 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 get somebody to come help me later so that I don't have to abandon my home or my home doesn't get further damaged because I couldn't fix a basic hole so there would be things like being able to board up a window and stuff like that. You know, basic things that you can use for basic repairs basic hand tools and the basic knowledge of how to use them you know if the, if a door is 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 kicked in by an intruder uh, once that crisis is abated, we should be able to board up the, the doorway so we feel safe for that night. I'm probably sitting there with a shotgun in case a guy comes back, but we should be able to board that up until we can get to the, the loser convenience store or whatever, I mean, a, a home improvement store and frame it in a door. Whatever it is, we lose a window. We should have the material necessary to board up and tape up, fix that window good enough until we can get to a higher level of repair. All right, so... All of those things. And storm damage is the big one for stuff like that. Because we can take a a, a type of damage that's going to be a few hundred bucks to fix eventually, maybe covered by insurance, and turn it into catastrophic damage if we don't cap the damage. The next thing is we should have water for at least 30 days for all needs, including drinking, cooking, and bathing. This is critical. Uh, And you need more than you think you do. There's a lot of ways to do that, but again, I want you to think in days. How would you do that? And I know people, well, I'm on a well. Great, you have no power. I have a generator. Does your generator run your well? It will. The specs say it will. Have you ever tried it? Right. Don't rely on it unless you've tried it and it worked. You know, i got 50 gallons of water. That's a great start. How many people are in your house? Five. Okay. That's 10 gallons each. How long is that going to last you? You just gotta work that out. You gotta figure, well I've got a pond. I hope you got a filter, a way to boil water. I mean, I'd be boiling, filtering, and chemically treating pond water. Right? I would be at least filtering it if I'm using it for cleaning and bathing. Right? So you gotta think about cleaning and bathing, and not just your body, your clothing. Right? How's your washing machine gonna work without water? Can you get water into your washing machine? There's ways to do it there's ways to do it I'm, again I'm not gonna get into uh, all of these things deeply the holiday I'm just saying these are things to think about right um, the next thing is you should have money put aside to pay all your expenses for 90 days if you had no income without what I call RRA right so that means rating retirement accounts. If you have to clean out your 401k to last 90 days, you're not prepared. That 401k money is not for tomorrow; it's for your retirement. That's why you put it there. So you've you've had to go into a reserve that for for a purpose other than its intent. That it doesn't mean I wouldn't do it if I had to. It means it's not you're not prepared. So you should have a 90 day emergency fund. Now, a 90 day emergency fund doesn't need to continue to support things like uh, your, your son's, uh, soccer habit and going out every Friday night to the movies and stuff. But your base budget, your non discretionary spending, you, you have to have at least a 90 day fund to cover your non discretionary spending. All the things you have to pay for. And again, your, what's discretionary and non discretionary is based on your reserves. So if I have 90 days of food reserved, then my food becomes discretionary spending. If I don't have a reserve of food, my food goes into my non-discretionary spending. You have to start thinking about your life like a business person does. But you've got to have that. So money to pay all your expenses for 90 days with no rating of retirement accounts. And people think that's really difficult, but it's not. You know, they tell you, save 10% of your money for your retirement. Save 10% of your money for yourself until you have 90 days put away, and then save 10% for your retirement. Just save it outside first. And what you have to do is you have to rebalance this every once in a while. People I, I, We've had our emergency fund sitting in our bank account for, oh I don't know, five years. It's just an account we never use. Get our little quarter of a percent interest on it, and it's just there if we need it. When was the last time you put money in it? Well, five years ago. Okay, does your life cost you more today than it did five years ago? Has the inflation rate been greater than the interest rate on the account? You need to put a little more money in there once in a while. So you need to reevaluate. I'd say once every year or two. Once you feel like, okay, we got our 90-day fund, redo your base budget, look at the money in there, and then overfund it by 10 to 15%. And then every time, every year or two later, do that again, and if it's still good enough, increase it by 10%. And every year, increase, every year or two, increase it by 10% of what it is. Not percent, you know, of, of uh, total. Like, so if you had, I don't know, $15,000 in there, and that was, you know, five grand a month covered you, put 150 bucks in. Or 15, I'm sorry, $1,500 in it. Every two years. And it'll be like $1,611 or whatever the next year. And just keep doing that. Just keep doing it. Pause. Pause the contributions to the retirement to do it. It's it's your critical money. It's the money closest to you, and it can actually end up being part of your retirement if you don't ever draw on it. But it's there. The security it gives you is amazing. And the thirty day or the, the ninety day fund over a few years starts turning into a uh, hundred and eighty day fund, and that's important. And if we all did this when we were young, and I wish I could tell you when I was twenty I already thought this way. I didn't. But as we remember, I talked about the beginning of the show, how we advance, we advance, we advance in our lives. And the amount of catastrophe and losing a job becomes so much greater. If you're advancing that emergency fund all along the way, the staying power that it represents when you lose a job is significantly higher. And if you don't lose a job, it's a big chunk of money. You can move into some sort of retirement uh, funded vehicle at some point if you choose to when you get close enough. But it's there. It's there and it's available. And when you lose a job, you might just say, you know what? I've been thinking my whole life about going independent and being a consultant. And screw them. They fired me. I didn't want to leave. I'm going to go back and pick up all of the people that have been my clients for years and take them out independently. If they don't like it, they should have fired me. I'm not suggesting that that would be the mindset to have all the way through it, but if you get fired and you had clients that you could take independently and they fired you and you didn't do anything wrong, then you know what? They just created a competitor. Good luck, bitches. And if I can live for 180 days pretty much the way I always had, that's a long time for me to go out and get those freaking customers back, isn't it? You should have thought about who you fired. There's a, it's a lot easier to have that attitude. Or, you know what, <laughs> maybe our biggest competitor would like me to be working for them with all of my inside industry knowledge and all my contacts. I think I'll go over there. Or I've had enough of this damn state anyway. They've been taking away my liberties for so long. I'm going somewhere better and looking for something new. All of those decisions, all of those things are easier, or I hate what I do anyway. I've been working on this little side business. Now it's time to ramp it up to full time. All of those decisions are easier when that retire when that emergency fund, is exceeds that 90 day thing. Um, the next thing is security for your home and your persons, and I have a, kind of a little other thing to help you remember how to do that. ETPP, right? Those are your cornerstones. To security for your home and your persons. And it's equipment, training, procedures, and protocols. There are certain things that allow you to be more secure. Anything from a concealed carry gun, to a knife, to pepper spray, okay, to a lock on a door, a lock on a window, security film on a window, an alarm system, a fence, a dog. I know my dog, he's right here underneath me right now, Charlie. I'm patting him on the back. He is family, but he's also security. He really is. Just from an alarm standpoint, but um, those of you who have met him know how friendly he is. This dog in the dark with a stranger is a totally different animal. And my response to people that think we shouldn't have dogs that eat faces, if you don't want your face eaten by Charlie, don't climb over my fence in the dark, and you probably won't get your face eaten off by him. You know, come through the front gate like you're supposed to and be welcomed, and he'll lick you and pet you and ask you to rub his belly. But climb over my fence, you're probably getting your face eaten. Sorry about your luck. Don't do that. He's part of the equipment in that situation. So equipment is the, the things that provide security, whether they're defensive weaponry or defensive, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, fortification type things. Okay? So that's your equipment. Your training is what do I do with this equipment and how do I enact my procedures and my protocols? So if I'm carrying a gun but I don't have training and I'm in a situation where I need to draw that weapon... There's all kinds of things that can go wrong between the decision to draw and the execution of fire. Like standing there and doing it right but not moving and staying in the line of fire and ending up dead or hit before you get your weapon out. Or having a person reach forward and grab your hand. If you're drawing a weapon, you should be moving. You get good training, you're going to know that. You don't have the training, you don't know that. You don't know where to move, how to move. You know the whole knife and gun thing again? Yeah. You think you can get to me from 21 feet with a knife before I draw my gun? If I stand there while you run at me with a knife over your head, probably. If I get the hell out of the way, if I move as though I wasn't armed, and then bring that gun to bear as a martial weapon, okay, a handheld weapon, with a complete plan, yeah, you're probably not getting to me in 21 feet with that knife. Because I can break distance, you have to close distance. Unless you have training, you don't know that. Okay? And most of those little exercises where somebody gets stabbed with a knife while they're trying to pull out a gun, the guy pulling a gun doesn't know shit about guns or how to use it. Doesn't have the training, only the equipment. Procedures are what we do every day. Or things that we never do. Like, it's part of our procedures, and we don't do this. So one of our procedures... With our household is you do not leave the house without a means of communications. You do not leave your cell phone on the table, get in the car and drive down the street. If you get in the car and realize you don't have your phone, no matter how inconvenient that is, you get your ass out of your car, you come back and get your phone. That is a procedure. Right? Neither my wife nor I ever go anywhere without saying hey I'm leaving this is where I'm going this is when you can expect me back not because we don't trust each other because we don't trust the freaking world okay and if, if if my wife leaves and says well I'm not going to be back till four I'm not going to be able to you know call you and tell you anything's going on today because I'm going to be with dad at the doctor's or whatever and I don't hear from her till four o'clock I'm not worried at four oh five I'm like at least a text hey everything cool It's not like, I don't trust you, are you with your other boyfriend or some stupid stuff like that. It's like, we've now, and that's a protocol. Now I've moved to a protocol. When the procedures have been exhausted and something's out of whack, a protocol is the next step. So we have procedures for how we keep our homes safe. If there were riots going on, we'd enact higher level protocols, which are basically a system of higher level procedures. The protocol is where we go to when the normal has changed, okay? So the procedure is carry a handgun, I carry a knife, carry pepper spray. Protocol is there's a threat. What do I, how, what's the methodology of response based on my training? My procedure has been met up to this point. Now I'm into a protocol, okay? Protocol might be, hey, you know what? This guy's a whack job. He's waving a gun around, but he really ain't gonna kill anybody where he's at right now because everybody's scattered. My protocol is not to walk up to him and shoot him. My pro- protocol is to get on the phone, 911. I'm an armed observer in this situation. Here's what's going on. This guy's doing da 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 da. And when the 911 operator says, well, you need to put your gun down. <laughs> no. That's not part of my protocol, idiot. I'm I'm here defending myself and my person right now. I'm here, your eyes I'm your eyes and ears on the ground. Send help. I'm not putting the gun down. First of all, it's not even drawn yet, idiot. Now let's go. I am going to tell that 911 operator I'm armed and what I look like. That's my protocol to keep from getting shot by the cops. I'm in a blue shirt. I'm crouched behind a, a red truck. I'm observing this guy right now. He's you know I'm a concealed license concealed carry holder. Uh, when the cops get here, this is what they need to be aware of. Put me through the officers in response if you want to. I'll tell you exactly what's going on. That's a protocol, right? You come to my door. You've walked through my walk-through gate. I don't know you. No one does that at our property. Our property set up in a way that's not... not I'm not going to shoot you. But I'm not going to the door. If I happen to have just taken a shower or whatever, my gun's off. I'm not going to the door without my gun. I'm not probably doing that anyway, but if I look out, it's my best friend on his way in. You know, I'm not too worried about it. But somebody that, you know, the dog's got his ass hair up and stuff, you're you're being greeted with caution. Not because I don't expect people to walk up to a door and knock on, on a strange door, because people do it all the time. My house is surrounded by a security perimeter fence. You can get in during the day, but most people wouldn't do it if they don't know you. So there's something not right there. So there's a protocol initiated. If there was major storms and people start looting stuff around here, we'll have a different level of protocol. The Standard procedures get elevated. Equipment training procedure protocol saves your life, saves your ass. And that doesn't just work for security. Really, equipment training procedures protocol works in all walks of life. Job loss. Your equipment is your network, your resumes, etc., right? Your training is your knowledge, your skill set, and how to network. Your procedures are, you keep that shit up to date all the time, even when you think your job's safe. Your protocol, you've lost your job, you know you're losing your job, your downsized, your pay cut, whatever, you initiate your protocol. If, If you start that ETPP thinking in all walks of your life, you become amazingly resilient. The next is your ability to help your neighbors. I think if you have the ability to take care of yourself, but you couldn't help a single other person that you are not prepared. The security of your neighborhood is the security of yourself. Right? And if your neighbors are putting all their shit in garbage bags piled up next to your house and you live, you know, in a typical suburban neighborhood where you can spit out your window and hit their their wall, it's just as much of a a health and sanitary problem for you as if it was your own. If the garbage man's not coming for 30 days, you might want to think about how you would deal with that. Well, one way you can deal with it still sucks, but it it does prevent the spread of disease and stink to a large degree. You know the blue stuff they put in a toilet in an RV? You get a few gallons of that and a five-gallon bucket, some good contractor-grade uh, garbage bags, and a toilet seat, and you can deal with it. Except it still sucks, but it is at least somewhat sanitary. Well... Get a few extra gallons if you have neighbors on both sides of you, and you may need to initiate the protocol of explaining to them how to deal with that. You may need to help feed your neighbors, help power your neighbor's devices, etc. You may not be keeping them as comfortable as you are with your reserve power, but making sure they have cell phones. They can call family and friends and communicate and get information. Right. The next is the ability to communicate and get information. You should have a small radio. I don't mean a ham radio. If you want ham, that's fine. It's a whole other discipline. But I mean a little transistor radio that runs on a couple AA batteries, right, just so you can get information, a small TV set. If you live in a place where TVs will work with rabbit ears, antennas, or something, you should have that. I don't watch TV. Don't care. should have it for a crisis. It's a major source of information during a crisis, right? So and, and so the communicate thing is also how, do, how the hell do you reach everybody? Well, everybody's in my phone. Okay, great. Your phone doesn't work. When the, when the, when the flood happened, your phone got knocked off the table into the water. Your phone's dead. How do you, how do you call your, 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 your mom and make sure she's okay? What's your phone number? I've got that one memorized. Okay, you got hit in the head. Does your wife know what the number is? You know, I mean, you're in the middle of a crisis. Do you think all the things that you take for granted you're going to remember are there? So the ability to communicate and get information. The next is the ability to move out and survive away from home and get back home. Bug out bags, bug out planning. How? And like I said in in the the show on Monday, people think about bugging out as like the zombies are coming and dogs and cats are having puppy kittens and it's the end of the world as we know it. It's catastrophe on end. And I'm going to go live in the mountains. Sometimes bugging out is, you're away from home, you get a phone call, a member of your family is in a hospital 30 miles away with life-threatening injuries. You're going to go to that place and you're not going to leave, you're going to stay put there. That's a bug out. I know you don't think about it that way, and you're not going to be sitting a pup tent up, right? But you might be sleeping on the floor in the room with them, you know, and Little comfort items in those situations are critical. Or it's there's a storm and you have to leave. You don't know when you're going to come back, but you know you want to come back. The ability to leave, live away from home, and come back. And, and again, I'm not talking about living in, the, in, the, in the, the campgrounds. But there's so much of our lives in our homes that we don't understand how critical that all is until it's taken away from us. Along those lines, a full info and documentation kit. And I have a whole episode on that. I'll put a link in today's show notes of documentation planning. But this is everybody you'd ever want to call. All your financial information, all your insurance information, anything that's critical that you don't want like an identity thief to get uh, their hands on, encrypt it in a way that you can decrypt and they can't. One-off number encryption is great. Most bank accounts, if you add a one to the front of them, a zero to the back of them, And put dashes in them look like a phone number. If then you alter all the other bank account numbers, all the numbers in it, by one up or one down, nobody's figuring that out, or two up or two down. So if the number was 678, right, and you changed it to 890, you would know how to convert it back. So there's no excuse not to have the information. You can put that information into any format that you want to. Photocopies. In secured locations, yes, but of your driver's license, passport, any critical identifications, birth certificates, etc. A lot of times when you're in a crisis where you've lost everything, getting insurance taken care of, etc., all comes down to do you have the documentation. Perfect example of documentation we should have had and we can't find it now. We've been through all of our strong boxes and don't know where it is. The title to a truck we paid off in 2006 my son was uh, using it he got hit by a driver from the rear clearly the driver's fault we have about 700 dollars worth of damage to the vehicle that the the offenders insurance companies willing to pay they say there's still a lien on the truck we have to now get a copy of that title to get our 700 bucks annoying inconvenient and we got to pay the state of pennsylvania because that's where the t- truck was titled $50 to get them, and we've got to give them a it, – it start. you start to see the value of all this now. They have to have a copy of a utility bill and a bank statement to prove we are who we say we are, and we live where we say we live, and a copy of our driver's licenses. This is over 700 bucks. What if it was $70,000 worth of damage to a house? Eventually you're going to get it taken care of, but it, wouldn't it be better if you could get it taken care of now instead of next week? These documentation plans and kits. Documentation should also include where you're going to go, how you're going to get there, different routes, different rally points, procedures and protocols. Everything should be in that documentation kit. So when your 16 year old daughter who just got a car is freaking out at high school and there's a mandatory evacuation for whatever reason, and you've got her on the phone and she's like, I don't know, what to do. I don't know, what to do. turn to page seven. You're at school. You see where the school is? Yep. You're going to meet me. At this point A, you see where point A is? Get in the car, go there, daddy will be there. It's like that regaining composure. That's just one example. Documentation kit. Next, you have to have, and this is in you and your training, a situational awareness and a positive mental condition. You have to pay attention all the time to what's going on around you, especially within your circle of influence. And there's two types of circles of influence. There's a circle of influence that you control, And there's a circle of influence that the best you can do is react to. Okay? So I influence a lot of things in my life, but there's things other people do that their circle of influence comes inside of mine. Couple ways I can handle it. One, I can be aware. Here it comes. Two, it's coming. I cannot stop it, but I gotta get out of the way. Whether it's financial, physical, you know, it's a, a real world danger. It's a tactical choice just for a better life. I have got to stay situationally aware. Situational awareness is not just not wearing your earbuds while you pump gas at a gas station in a bad side of town, and somebody comes up behind you and hits you in the head with a pipe, pulls your wallet out, throws you on the ground, jumps in your car and drives away. That is like not doing that is a form of situational awareness. Okay, but paying attention to the dadgum gas gauge in the first place and never being down to less than an eighth of a tank. So you have to stop and get gas somewhere where you probably didn't want to do anyway. That's situational awareness, too. Paying attention to things that the government does that are, you know, I, I'm what one tell tells you. There's things they do. You're not going to stop it. But it still might affect you. So your situational awareness is, well, okay, they're going to do this. Calling my congressman, voting, yelling at the newspaper guy, the TV guy, running around in my socks at night, chanting, I hate Obama, is not going to stop this. Okay, it's out of my circle of influence, outward. But is is the circle of its influence going to impact my circle of life? Yes. How do I respond to it? That's part of your situational awareness. Positive mental conditioning. I can deal with anything. I don't. There's things I never want in my life. But if you bring it on, I'm bringing it back. I am surviving. I am making it. What I do matters. I will kick the ass out of any enemy. And if I lose, as long as I survive, I'm coming back for more. That attitude and that situational awareness together is absolutely imperative to your long-term survival and your thriving in life. The next is basic physical fitness and reasonable activity levels. Get the hell up. Take a walk. Eat decent. You know, I say paleo, low-carb is the way to live. It's the best way. I don't care, though. If you want to live in a a traditional nutritionist idea of what healthy eating is, as long as we're not living on Big Macs and your activity levels up there and you keep yourself in decent shape, you're probably going to be okay or better off than most. All right, find what works for you, but uh, pay attention. Your situational awareness is also hey, these pants fit a little tighter than they used to. Even though I thought I was doing everything right, I must have put some weight back on. That's not good for me. I'm gonna I'm gonna make some adjustments here. It you know, doesn't mean we don't let our hair down. Trust me, Thanksgiving's coming up. I'm going to put myself in a, in a, a turkey gravy and a potato-induced coma on, on Thanksgiving Day. I'm going to sit in front of the TV. I'm going to veg. I'm going to watch football. I don't think the game that's on that day is that big a deal to me, but I'm going to watch it anyway because that's part of our tradition, and I'm going to be happy. But on but on Friday, when everybody else is running to the store and shopping, I'm going to be outside working in my homestead, preparing my ground to produce good nutritious food for me for the rest of my life that's part of my health planning both the activity necessary and the results that come from it all right and then i believe you need a network of friends and contacts you can count on professional and personal uh and security all of it that if you're trying to be an island you know i've had people on that have survived everything from uh, a business-going bus to a country going to Civil War. And it's always the case that those that do the best have others they can rally with, work with, commune with, and I think we're just healthier beings if we have friends. So make sure you build that network of, of, of friends, and it's not just the ones on Facebook, people that you really know that you can talk to. Get involved with activities in life. If nothing else, take up bowling. You know, go find a league, go play darts or bowl or something. Get out of your house and talk to people, know people. Have, have movie nights with neighbors. I don't care what it is, but have the conversations in your life with people that you know that aren't just family members go beyond, hey, nice weather we're having, Tom. Yeah. And you guys both put the garbage out and go back in your house. It's, it's critical. And if you do those things, right, like, so none of that stuff's the shit you hear about on Doomsday Preppers. Even the guy with guns, he's got like fourteen ARs, and they're ready to secure the whole property, and we've got booby traps and all this other crap. But you, you know, you don't hear the concept of equipment, training, procedures, protocols. And the biggest reason to be armed is because somebody might hurt you tomorrow morning, not because the society will collapse. So even where they get close, they don't get to these things at all. But the ability to get back home after you've left. It's not a doomsday prepper topic, that's not sexy, that doesn't sell, that's not marketing, but it's real. Taking care of yourself, being in decent shape. Monetary savings. Well, I'm gonna go, you know, people buying like hordes and hordes of silver and having holes drilled in their floors and shit so they can have a half a ton of silver down there, but yet they have no cash. Well the economy's gonna collapse anyway. Well what if it doesn't? Right? What if you just lose your job tomorrow, and this doomsday people don't pay you very well for your fifteen minutes of fame, and now you need to like pay the rent on the house where all your silver's buried? I guess you could dig the silver up and go stuff. But you you get what I'm saying? These are not the things that people talk about. Thirty days worth of food? Well, you got to have thirty before you have thirty years, right? If you're driving from Florida to Maine, you got to go to Georgia on the way. In fact, if you're driving from Miami, Florida to Maine, you're probably going through Jacksonville. You gotta stay, you gotta get to a new place in Florida before you get to Georgia, and then you get to, you know, South Carolina and North Carolina and keep on going and eventually get to Maine. So even if you're going to these extremes, you gotta start somewhere. Most of these people go straight to the extreme, they never start somewhere. You, well, didn't they have to, well, they didn't get to where they think they are either. Because if you can't live your life basically happy for a couple weeks while the power is out, and the roads are iced up and you gotta stay home, well you're not gonna get through the apocalypse either. And all those rice and beans aren't gonna change that. This is the way to be. You do these things and you're ahead of most of the extremist doomsday people, most of the people that call themselves preppers, and most of the people that call them survivalists, themselves survivalists. There's survivalists that are ready to fight the Illuminati, but if somebody mugs them on the street, they're gonna end up dead. This is the way to make sure that your life is insured. And then, don't think everything's okay just because everything's not burning. right? This is the, the biggest problem. And when I, I have a hard time talking about things like economic collapse anymore. Because as soon as I say, it's not going to look like this, people think it's going to be okay. You know, Don't think that uh, Ferguson, Missouri doesn't affect you because you live in Dallas, Texas. What Ferguson tells you, if you live in Dallas, is that could happen here. All right? Don't think that Ebola doesn't affect you just because you're not going to get Ebola. Right. This whole Ebola hysteria drives me crazy. They did a whole show on it about how ridiculous it is. But what it showed you is your government has no real way to deal with a pandemic. None. They are not qualified to do what they say they're qualified to do. If we end up with serious illness uh, that spreads... That we're totally unprepared as a nation to deal with it. So you've seen the exposure, therefore you need to have the mental state and the planning and the procedures and the protocols. How would I deal with a, a, a pandemic? That doesn't mean you sit around every day going, oh, man, there's going to be a pandemic. Oh, man, there's going to be a pandemic. Oh, man. No, it just means that just because everything looks okay, just because the streets aren't on fire, doesn't mean there's not a reason to be prepared. Because as I said at the very beginning of the show, even if the world doesn't end, yours could. And I can't guarantee you that if you do everything that I said today, that your world won't ever end. In fact, I can guarantee you the exact opposite. No matter what you do, until such time as they develop the ability for you to download your soul, being, and mindset into some kind of automaton and live forever like Bicentennial Man, right? until that happens, I can guarantee you your world will end someday. They'll float you out to sea, they'll put you in a six foot deep hole, they'll put you in an urn, whatever it is you have planned for your shell, when you, when your spirit leaves your mortal, mortal shell, that will happen for you someday. And there are things that will accelerate. Like I said, the whole gun versus knife nonsense. If, if you're walking down the street and somebody decides they want you dead, and they're willing to kill you, and they choose to kill you through an immediate action, Not put a gun in your face and ask for your wallet. Just to shoot you. 99.99% chance of death. I don't care if it's a gun, a knife, or a shovel hitting you in the back of the head. Because we can't live in a way where every person is seen as a threat. And you're walking around with your hand on your gun. And if somebody takes one step too close to you, you shoot them. You can't live that way. The truth is, those that will do violence, for the sake of violence... Always will have an advantage on the rest of us if they choose to act on that, in that one instance. Now there's all types of repercussions for that, that's part of what keeps a lid on it. But trust me, if I, if I had lost all my morals, and I just want you dead, I can probably kill you. And that's probably true of any other thinking, reasonably fit human being could do the same to you. Or to me. Or you to me, the other way around doesn't matter how badass of a martial artist you are. doesn't matter how well-armed you are. If somebody can walk up behind you and go, hey, and put their hand on your back, they can kill you. So I know, sooner or later, that all of us will face that mortal reality. Whether it's from old age, a falling rock, a speeding car, or a scumbag, we will all face that. What I'm telling you is if you live this way that I've described today, if you put these systems in place, if you have this equipment, if you have these procedures, if you have these protocols, and if you, if you marry it to training, the likelihood of survival in every realistic scenario goes up, and the likelihood of keeping your life on track, headed to where you want to be, and living the best life you can goes up, and the probability that even if you're knocked off, you can get back on goes up. So it makes sense to do. This is responsible adult behavior. That's what this is. This is not survivalism, but yet it is. Survival means to continue to exist. Ist, one who specializes. It's a suffix. Survival ist, one who specializes in continuing to exist. Modern survivalist, one who specializes in continuing to exist with the modern conveniences and things they want in their life. Modern survivalism, hello. It is responsible Adult behavior, but if you look around your nation, ninety-five percent or more of the people out there have no interest in being a responsible adult. If we judge it that way, and to me, you say, "Well, is it that? Is that that cut and dry, Jack?" Or have you gone into the binary code thing? Like you're irresponsible. I don't know. I think if you if you're an adult, head of your household and you haven't made sure that you can feed the people that depend on you for at least 30 days, if something goes wrong, that's irresponsible. You, you tell me, right? If you, if you can't at least get enough lighting on in your home when it gets dark out so your kids aren't screaming and terrified in the dark, people aren't falling down the stairs, etc., cetera, uh, within a few minutes, then you're not responsible, right? If you're not going to make sure that if you have a baby, you can keep one of your rooms cool enough so they don't die of heat exhaustion if the power goes out for a couple weeks in the summer, I don't think it's responsible. Right. I think if you don't have a plan to deal with all of the waste material you have, if something goes wrong in the chain of events that normally takes it away from you, and you end up with somebody sick in your home because of it, that's because you're irresponsible. I think if, you're, if somebody in your home is sick and you can't take them to the doctor and you don't have the basic things to make sure they're reasonably comfortable and you've been dependent on to do that and you've created the illusion that you're going to do that, you're irresponsible. I mean, have, have I gotten to any of them yet? That are that you would say that like it's it's not irresponsible to not do that. If if you can't at least keep your home sound when when it, from minor things that now become major because you don't have any idea how to fix them, I don't think that's responsible, right? I if you don't make sure that people will have water to drink in your house, I don't think it's responsible. I don't think if you have a, if if you don't if you have the ability to save some money. For a rainy day and you don't, I don't think it's responsible adult behavior. I don't think expecting that somebody else will always take care of you and you'll always be safe and you'll always be secure and there's nothing to worry about who would want to hurt me is responsible adult behavior. I think those of you out there, and this is more true in women than men, they think, no one would ever come and hurt me. No one would ever come here and rob my house. I think you are freaking mind-numbingly simple-minded, but I think you're also extremely irresponsible. No one would hurt me. Do you have kids? Women that are like that, do you have children? Do you have children? Yeah, well, some scumbag might break in your house, beat the shit out of you, rape you in front of your kids, because you don't think anybody will hurt you. Is it too real? I'm sorry. Okay? Okay just because i'm saying the world isn't going to collapse and end doesn't mean there's not violence and danger and reality and we don't need to be prepared for it and it's i'll tell you what if it scares you when you hear me say that if you don't like it when you mean it is equipment training protocol and procedure that make it less likely that that scumbag will be capable of getting the job done if he chooses to try it and it could be as simple as lock the damn door when you get home But my kids are coming home from school. Give them a key. Give them a key. If kid's old enough to walk to the front door by themselves. They're old enough and have enough dexterity to stick the key in, turn it, come in the house, teach them to lock the door when they come in. Most of the people that break into homes, you know when they do it? During the day, while you're there, with the door unlocked. Best cat burglars in the business. This is what they do. They watch when... More than one person. They want more than one person to be home. They they case your place, figure out what you're doing. They know all your money, your jewelry, and your high-dollar items are in the master bedroom. And If you have a one-story house and the master bedroom is on the first floor, ding, 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 you win the opportunity to have your shit stolen. And they wait for you to leave the door open, and they slip in the house, they go in the master bedroom, and they lock the door. Uh-huh. I'm, I can't make this up. I'm not a cat burglar. I've just studied this. I know how it works. They take all the shit that they can get, And if you try to get in the door, it's locked. Now, when your bastard bedroom door is locked and the kids are home or the old man's home and you're the woman of the household, do you start kicking and bashing the door in, pull out your gun and open up holes in your own door, start screaming and yelling and dial 911? You don't do any of that shit. You know what you do? Who went in here and locked the door? Ding, ding, ding. The alarm just went off for the guy stealing your shit. He opens the window Goes out the door, closes the window, never breaks anything. Goes out through the gate, walks down the road and disappears. If he's done his job right, he hasn't ransacked everything. And it's two days later before mom opens the jewelry box and goes, where did all that stuff go? (gasps) Yesterday when the door was locked. There you go. So lock the damn door. Because the same guy that does that to steal from you might do it to take other things from you things you can never get back. This is the reality of the dangerous world that we live in. I can't guarantee you safety, and neither can the government. I can tell you that you're responsible for your own safety, your own security, for your own food security, your own financial security. You are responsible. If you want to know who's responsible for all the good and bad in your life, go find a mirror and look in there, and that person staring back at you is the primary person responsible for all those things. You can't blame anybody. You can't count on anybody. It's up to you. That's responsible behavior. This is basic preparedness. This is modern survivalism. These are the dangers that do exist from an economic standpoint, from a natural disaster standpoint, from a pandemic standpoint, from a scumbag standpoint. It's all real. It all exists. Most of us live most of our lives sheltered from it one way or another, but it takes that long for it to be compromised. And without proper planning, your life can be ended ruined that's what I'm trying to prevent for people out there and what started this all off the discussion on the economy please understand how dire the economic picture is for the future of this nation at the same time that fortunes are going to be made you have to be adaptable you have to have the training the equipment the procedures and the protocols for a modern era with that this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the survival podcast helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, a week. Nobody up there cares.